a Gen Z kid and a boomer were seated next to each other at the bar there at Chili's. The Gen Z kid orders the gluten-free vegan meal. And the boomer, of course, orders him a big old fat T-bone steak. They start chatting back and forth. And the Gen Z kid says, the climate change is the biggest problem facing the world. And this corporate power structure is a plague on society. The boomer goes back and forth. And he waves that off. And he says, the kids these days are nothing more than sissies. And they're too ignorant to even understand how society truly works. And uh, I gave up Aquanet and aerosols in the 90s to fix the hole in the ozone layer, so I did my part, and enough is enough. They go back and forth on these issues for a while. Finally, the Gen Z kid says, well, we're just not going to settle this. He says, "Uh, we don't see eye to eye. You're too old and out of touch, and I'm too young, I guess, and inexperienced. What we need to do is ask a millennial with a Ph.D. in sociology for their opinion, at which the boomer says, that's a great idea. Hey, bartender, come here. We got some questions for you. I am not going to heaven, and you know it, and I know it. I'm just repenting right now, Jesus. Uh, We are in a series called Next Gen. Turn to the person next to you and say, Next Gen. And the purpose of this series was really to turn our hearts towards the younger generation, whatever generation you fit in, to begin to pay attention and uh, begin to turn some things. We looked at some statistical analysis last week, and it was pretty scary about where we're heading as a nation, as a, as a church, the universal church. And uh, we had a key scripture, Psalms chapter 71. And it's going to be our key scripture for the series, not only last week, but this week and uh, next week as well. Psalm 71, verse 17. This is where our heart kind of comes from for this message. Oh God, the psalmist said, you have taught me from my earliest childhood. And I constantly tell others about the wonderful things you do. Now that I'm old and gray, do not abandon me. Oh God, let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all those who come after me. The psalmist says, Lord, since I was a little boy, I served you. I I had a relationship with you. And and you, I've seen the wondrous, wonderful works of God in my life. And and I've gone around telling everybody about it since I was young. I've told everybody. But Lord, now that I'm older, I'm looking up and there's a brand new generation. They don't get it. They don't know about you. So Lord, give me a little bit more life so that I have an opportunity to share with this new generation how good you are, how great you are, how wonderful it is to serve the living God. Is that your heart today? Say yes. Come on. Somebody say yes. That's my heart. And that's what the psalmist said. And it's from there that this series is really born. And, uh, and he says to the new generation. Now, I explained to you guys last week, you know, growing up, for me, I, I didn't know there were different generations. Uh, we, 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 for my life, it was the younger generation, the middle age, and the old people. I mean, that was the three generations. But somehow over the last 50, 60, 70 years, they've, uh, they've identified us all by age bracket. And so I just wanted to review for a moment just so you can find your place so you know exactly what you are based on what society calls us now. So to those of you born from 1928 to 1945, you're the silent generation. Are there any of those in the room? Come on now. Come on. I love it. So much good. See, you can't hear them, but they're here. They're the silent generation. Uh, How about those of you born from 1946 to 1964? You're baby boomers. Any baby boomers in the house? Yeah. So grateful for our baby boomers. They are our wisdom of this house, and they give us such strength. And then how about those of you born 1965 to 1980? You're Gen Xers. Any Gen Xers in the house? Yeah. Greatest group ever. And then those of you born 1981 to 1996, you're millennials. Any millennials in the house? Let's see. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry for picking on you guys earlier with the little piece. Keep, keep tithing, please. All right, so. Um, <laughs> and then those of you born 1997 to 2012, you're Gen Z. Any Gen Z made it to the early service by any chance? All right. Good job. Way to go. We will see them at noontime. Okay, and then. And then now they're calling the younger ones that are eight years old and younger, those born uh, 2013 to the present, they're, they're starting to call them Gen Alpha. And uh, it, you, you know, when we were looking at this last week, there's a couple things I, I reminded us of that's happening with us on the planet. I consider a generation, anybody alive right now, quite honestly, we're one big generation, if you will, and we're facing the problems together. But even for the next gen, the younger guys, do you know now that the average age to see pornography is nine years old? Internet pornography, accessible, the most violent, perverted, wicked acts known to man, nine-year-olds. That's the average age. That means eight, seven, and six, all the way up to 10, 11, 12. They take those average, and they, uh, they take all those together, and they come up with an average of nine. I, you know, I, I didn't deal with that as a young man. I mean, we, we had, if we found a dirty magazine, we thought Jesus was coming back. I mean, the greatest moment of our lives. But to vileness and the wickedness by which this younger generation is having to sift through. Gave you a couple other statistics that this younger generation, uh, they, they, those um, from 12 to 17, 3 million of them say that they have had, had a major depression episode last year. 3 million of those guys in that age bracket. 60% of next gen said that most people cannot be trusted. They don't trust anybody. 70, 73% of uh, Gen Z says that... Um, that that, um, that everyone is looking out for themselves and didn't care about anybody else. That's their, that's their worldview. 70% of teens across all genders, all, all social economic status, 70% of them are struggling with mental health and say it's the major problem in their, in their youthfulness, in their childhood. Can you imagine that? Those of us that are a little older, I mean, the, the, my di most difficult thing was whether or not my, I had air in my, in my tires on my bicycle before I went out and played. And the fact that these guys are dealing with these kind of pieces. And so it's, it's really passion of our church, of Hill City, that we, like the psalmist, begin to reach out and make sure that we secure the generations below us. And so when I'm speaking the next, this week and next week about the next generation, one, you can just consider it, no matter what your age bracket is, that it's whoever around you that isn't quite at the same place you're at, all right? Would you just consider it that? And with that being said, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 17. Turn your Bibles there. I want to look at what Jesus did. When solving world's problems, I, I don't think I can solve it uh, with a psychology degree or a leadership degree of some sort. I think if we're going to solve the world's problems, we better do what Jesus did. Does somebody in the house agree with that? Say amen. And so I'd rather find out what the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of humanity, I would rather hear what he has to say, and I'd rather do what he did and follow how, how he led out. And so with that being said, Matthew chapter 17, give you a second to find it, and, uh, and verse 24. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 27, excuse me, chapter 17 and verse 24. It says, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collector of the two drachma tax, everybody say two drachma. Two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Verse 25, yes, he does, he replied. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. He said, what do you think, Simon? He says, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go down to the lake and throw your line Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin 
take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. So let me kind of explain what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples, so it's Jesus plus his 12 disciples, come into Capernaum. And the two drachma, the temple tax collectors, pull Peter aside and says, Hey, <laughs> does your pastor not pay the tax like he's supposed to? They're trying to catch Jesus in something. And uh, Peter's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And what they're talking about is a temple tax. And that temple tax um, is for the upkeep, the maintenance, the, the care of the temple. Um, uh, it, it, it provides, you know, obviously the, 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 the care of, of that, the people who will help caring for the temple and providing for all the workings of it. And so there was this, in, this tax. And so to really understand it, you got to go back and figure out when this was instituted. Where did this come from? And so if you go back in the book of Exodus, and we'll look somewhere here in chapter 30, here in just a second. But what had happened was the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. Jesus, God, excuse me, miraculous, got them out. Moses is leading them. They're not even in the wilderness for just a couple of months when God begins to put some things in place. If I'm going to be your God, then you're going to be my people. And we're going to have, we need to have a little DTR. We need to define the relationship a little bit. Because you guys going around making gold calves and all that kind of stuff, that's not going to work. That's not going to happen. And, uh, and so, so you're going to be in this wilderness for about 40 years because of your rebelliousness. But let's, let's, let's go ahead and start learning how to be in relationship with each other. So he sets, up this, he, he sets up this engagement by creating. He wants them to build a tent. He has them build the Ark of the Covenant, put the Ark of the Covenant in the tent, have an altar at the opening of the tent, and then put a, put a fence area around this tent. And then he said, and take Aaron, if you'll go back and look at this in Exodus, you know, chapters 27, 28, 29, 30. And, and he says, and, and have Aaron be the, be the priest. And here's what I want Aaron to do. I want every morning there to be a sacrificial lamb. Go get a little lamb, less than a year old, and I want it killed. And the blood sacrifice, because I want everybody to know. I want everybody to know the sacrifice that they're going to have to make, that they, that the sacrifice that I've made to get them back. And I want them to be connected to the pain and the suffering that their sin is causing. And I want them to see it with the sacrifice of this lamb. And then I want you to do it again in the evening. And not only that, but I want candles lit. And I want those candles to be lit all throughout the day and the night. And I don't ever want them to go bad. And I want this to be taken care of. And so Aaron now is instituted in his team of people. And so my question is, where do the lambs come from? Where do they get these little sheep? It's not like Aaron has these sheep miraculously show up at the temple every day to die. Kill me. I mean, that's not what happens. So, they, so he's got he's to buy them from someone or, or someone has to give them. And so they've got to they've buy them. They've got to pay for this thing. And then not only that, but where do you get the candles from? And the candles, I mean, it's not like they had uh, flowing electricity and plumbing. And not only that, what do you do with the carcasses of, uh, of those lambs after you've killed two a day? times 352 days a year. I mean, uh, 356 days a year. How, what do you do with all that? How do you do away with that, dispose of that? And how do you engage back and forth? And so there's a lot of work, effort, and energy. It's going to take some money. It's going to take some resources. And so in Exodus chapter 30, he, God tells him, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a, a tax. I want you to pick up an offering. And, uh, and we'll pick up in verse 11 of Exodus 30 where he says, and says, the Lord says to Moses, you shall take a census of the Israelites and count them. Each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life. I love how God says it. He says, listen, count them all. He said, and then tell them, guess what? You're going to pay a ransom. I saved you. I pulled you out of Egypt. You called on to me, so I did that. And so you now as a result, I'm going to call it a ransom. You can call it an offering. You can call it a tax. But basically, I gave your life back. I gave you your life back. You were slaves. I gave you your life back. He says, he must pay. He says, you must pay a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them, and you will, and, and you will number them. And because of all of the wickedness in them, if they'll give this offering, 
What I'll do is I'll put my hand of protection around them, no plagues, no sickness, because they don't have doctors and all this. They're out, in, they're out in the wilderness by themselves, a couple million folks trying to figure this thing out. He says, but I'll take care of you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And then he goes on with some other covenant relationship pieces. Then he drops down in verse 14, and he literally declares, uh, he declares who that will be. I'm sorry, in verse 17. And he says, and he says all those, verse 14, all those who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. And so he lays it out. Everybody over 20, you don't need to tax, you don't need to get money from the teenagers, from the kids, anybody over 20, all those men over 20, that's who I want to tax from. Everyone over 20. You come now, hundreds of years later, let's go back to our original passage here in Matthew chapter 17. The temple tax collectors at this point, they're taking up two drachma for the tax. And Jesus and, and, and Peter begin to engage. And Jesus says, now listen, Peter, honestly, we don't have to pay the tax. Why? Because I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Why do I have to pay a tax to myself? I don't have to pay a tax. He goes, but so we don't offend them. Go down, throw your favorite fishing line in the water, catch a fish. And he says, the first one you catch, and in its mouth is going to be four drachma. Go and pay what you and I owe. Back up with me for a second. Jesus plus 12 disciples, two drachma tax. Jesus plus 12 is 13. Everybody say 13. 13. Woo, good job, special people. 13 times two drachma should be 26 drachma. How come they only needed four to pay the tax they owe? Because the only ones over 20 was Jesus and Peter. All of his disciples were teenagers. Jesus, Jesus comes to earth and he picks who he's going to entrust the kingdom of God to. He picks who he's going to mentor on how to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out. He picks, stay with me, he's got anyone on the earth to choose from. He's got men and women who've been studying the word of God their whole life. Men and women who've seen angels. He doesn't pick any of them. He goes and he finds a bunch of Gen Zers. I want you to think about them for just a moment. They got issues. They got issues on top of their issues. And Jesus said, mm, that's who I'm picking. To entrust the kingdom of God, the plan of God to transform the earth, to start the new covenant relationship. He doesn't pick those that are a little older and more mature and have been around serving the Lord all the years and know all of the expenses, all the expansive understanding of the Torah. He picks a bunch of teenagers and says, I'm going to invest in you. As I've been preparing this, I got to thinking about how would we do that? And how much should we be doing that? And so I, I took a moment, and, uh, and I just I grabbed some of our young people. And I just wanted to hear, you know, I'm thinking about the issues that these guys have. And I just think, you know, if we're going to entrust, if we're going to do what Jesus did, I probably, we probably need to understand what our young people are going through. And so I took a couple moments, and if you would grace me for a couple minutes, I just want you to hear from some of the young people in our church some of your children, grandchildren, and, uh, and kind of what they go through and kind of the issues that they're dealing with uh, so that we know how to entrust into them the deep things that got a little bit better. So roll film for them. What's some of the most difficult pieces of what you deal with on a daily basis? Um, I have to say, like, the most personal most difficult is pleasing everybody or trying to please everybody. Yeah. Like, 
more so being what's the word I'm looking for like so socially acceptable in people's eyes and stuff like that? I think it's a lot of mental health issues. I feel like um, mental mental health is a really big issue that's like gotten like a lot bigger, a lot more prominent, especially for people our age, like people doing with anxiety or depression or anything like that. Just stressful situations at home or school, like the stress is crazy. Not having a safe place. Yeah. Yeah, explain that, not having a safe place, what do you mean? Um, in school, especially public schools, getting bullied constantly and then for some people coming home and doing, getting the same kind of treatment. Well, being a Gen, you know, someone who's in the Gen Z, uh, I think the biggest thing is just animosity from all angles right now. Wow. Even, even our own generation. Our own generation is attacking each other and the older generation going for younger and younger for older. There's no, there's no peace right now, I think. Do you think it's harder to be a Christian? Um, now than maybe it was back in like say, yeah Monday. it's a little harder in ours but it's also a little easier for y'all because like when y'all were little y'all's parent my parents always used to say in the 80s no one really cared what the kids did <laughs> now all they do is care so it even feels more trapping to become christian i'd say that less than five percent of my coworkers are christian i feel like i have to like sort of uh, shut down and suppress my um, my desire to evangelize just to keep my job and just to be able to uh, keep going with the people around me because they're just, they're so different. Everything's being put into every conversation, you know, it, it's not no longer uh, us kids trying to grow up anymore. It's we're trying to fend, defend, defend ourselves or attack the next person. It's no longer, hey, live out your young, youthful life. Yeah. It's more, all right, well, how do I feel about this? What's going to go down here? Not everyone believes in the same things. In fact, they like openly criticize many things about Christianity and I just, just there, be like I can't really say anything. <laughs> I think definitely now, especially with what's going on in today's society, we're not allowed to per se say certain things or even how we believe because some people either will either get offended by it or it'll be taken in the wrong, you know, uh, context. And that really plays into part with what I, what I say and how I say it. I have to like think about everything before I say it. Yeah, in social media, like it's either you, you're bad for being Christian or if you're a Christian and you make a mistake, then you're going to hell. So you get bullied a lot on social media if, as a Christian. I wouldn't say bullied, but I say definitely like you feel the pressure of like, oh, I'm Christian and that yeah. applies to me because I'm Christian. Mm -hmm. Or a lot of like, oh no, I'm going to post, you know, like I need to post a scripture, you know, that will make everything better. But then you're like, Oh no, what if these school people see that I posted a scripture? Or someone feels like you're pressuring your religion on someone. What do you think is gonna happen with Gen Z? What are, what are your thoughts? Like, what's the future look like? The way that I see it, it going now, it almost scares me in the sense that, okay, what am I gonna do when I'm older? How am I, how is, what is, what is gonna happen? You know, it's some, it's a question that I have to ask myself on a daily, like if I go down this path, how is, how am I gonna turn out here? Yeah. Because I don't know with, with Gen Z getting so caught up in everything, you got race, politics, uh, sexuality and religions. And I see it just being taken over. Like I said, I, I definitely think it's just something I gotta look out for is yeah. what's gonna happen next. Cause I don't know. Wow, I don't know if that was as enlightening to you as it was for me. I just, you know, all of us, 2020 was a tough year. Um, but to see the ramifications on the younger generation, 
I, I think I felt it maybe at the depth uh, in this interviewing of our own young people, maybe for the first time, the, the depth of depression, difficulty, anxiety, not to make a mistake, to be accepted by everyone. And uh, we called it peer pressure in our day. And uh, the level at which they're walking this out and trying to serve God as the same, at the same time, not wanting to be canceled with cancel culture. At the same time, I don't know if you remember when you were 13, 14, and 15, you wanted everybody to like you. And uh, how do you balance that out? And uh, it just was, it's really enlightening to me. And I believe Jesus was probably dealing with the same thing. He's dealing with a bunch of teenagers. And that's why you constantly see them fighting with one another, right? Who's the greatest amongst them? I'll never forget when I kept reading in the scriptures that they would get to fighting with each other. Like, who's the greatest? I was like, are you stupid? Like, what are you doing? And then it came to me when I realized they were all teenagers. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I mean, that's what I would have been doing when I was 14. I'm the better one out of all you guys. And so it's today with the rest of the message. I want to show you. I want, to, I want us to embrace the method that Jesus did in making world changers. Because he took these teenagers and he turned them into world changers. The Bible says, who are these men who are turning the world upside down? After Jesus had died and resurrected, it says, in the spirit of the Lord had come upon them. They were out there preaching and ministering. And the people were all fired up and the religious leaders were mad at them. Because they said, who are these guys? Look at them. They're uneducated. They're unschooled. But we can tell they've been with Jesus. And here they go forth, healing the sick, raising the dead. And friend, can I tell you something? That's a world changer. And it's time for us to raise up some world changers. Are you with me today? Say yes. And so no matter what the age is, if you're in your 70s and anybody around you that can be taught, can be trained, can be turned into a world changer is your target. And anyone that we can help grow a little bit. And so let's take Jesus's model. Let's do this. First number thing, the first thing that I saw Jesus do in scripture, number one, is that he modeled, he modeled a life before the Lord. He didn't just talk about it. He lived it. I like what Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went about around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Jesus didn't talk about it. He did it. He modeled it. He didn't talk about prayer. He prayed. He didn't, he didn't, just, he didn't just say, hey, you guys need to pray and this is how you, our Father which are now. He actually, they, they would lose him. He'd go up on a mountain and say, like, where you, where you been? I've been with the Father. I've just been praying. I've been seeking the Lord. We find him as, as he gets to the most difficult moment of his existence on the planet, as he's about to go to the cross, he goes straight to a place of prayer in the garden. He didn't just talk about it. He modeled it. Do you know why a younger generation doesn't want what we have? Because we're not modeling the power of the graces and mercies of God in our life. When they don't see it modeled, they're not interested in it. But you know this. When you see somebody who's got what you want, you, can, you will knock the door down to get to it. You think about it, those of you guys that want to be a little better, better off financially, if you had access to be mentored by someone who was a multimillionaire, you'd take advantage of that, wouldn't you? And this is the problem, is that, that we don't model the things of God properly to the younger generation. Jesus modeled it. I mean, he didn't just talk about kindness. He was kind. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm telling you right now, if it had been me, I'd have fried them all. The moment they started hitting me with that whip, I'd have been like, you're gone. Start over, Dad. Let's, pick, let's make some new ones. I don't need these. But he showed kindness. He didn't just talk about it. And this is the problem is that the younger generations are having a hard time when we're trying to stand for righteousness, but we're doing it without kindness. And they know that the kindness is what's supposed to lead us to repentance. And they're having this back and forth with the generation of Christians before them. And so you and I have to model what Jesus did as he modeled it. He just didn't talk about it. He modeled it. I'll never forget when I first came on staff at a church, I was 19 years old and and Pastor Rick Bizet hired me as his assistant youth pastor there in Louisiana at 
at, at the church I grew up in, and big mega church. And I'll never forget one morning, I, I probably hadn't been working six months, working with him. One morning, we, uh, we got to the office. He said, come on, let's spend some time praying. I was like, okay, let's do it. We're praying, and all of a sudden, he goes, you know what? He goes, there's a, there's a, there's a, a video store down the street. Now, so, so millennials, let me, back in the day, um, we had these stores where they had these tapes. They were VHS tapes, and we would go, and they had movies on them, and we would go and get them because there was nowhere else to get movies. And so we would go rent them. We'd have to return them. We'd rent them, and then we'd go play them on our VCRs. Yes. And then we had to rewind them and bring them back. If we didn't rewind them, we got charged an extra fee. And so we go into these buildings, and they had these buildings, and they had all of the cases with, like, advertising what the movie was. And you'd sit there in the sci-fi section of the drama, the romantic con, and you'd pick one, and then you'd rent it. It was awesome. So I just wanted you to know where we're at. All right, I know it's millions of years ago. And so, you know, he says, you know what? Down at that VHS store, you know what they got? They got a porno section. I'm like... Pastor Rick, really? He goes, yes, I just heard about it. He said, come on, we're going to do something about that. I was like, uh, okay. So it's 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. Nobody's at the VHS store Tuesday morning except the little 18-year-old who just graduated high school who's working the store. So we come walking in. Pastor Rick, little he's praying. He's all fired up. And he starts walking in. He goes, come here. Brings him to the back of the store, and there was this little curtain. And he pulled it back. He said, look back there. And it was not the size of a closet. And they had all the pornos, all of them in there. He goes, in there. That's what, and they're destroying a generation. And we're not going to put up with it. Not, not down the street from our church. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And he goes, come on, let's go talk to those guys. And I'm like, ooh, I don't know how we're going to do that. So he goes marching up to the counter, and there's this little 18-year-old just sitting there, you know. And he goes, do you know you got porno vi videos out there that people could, and kids could get a hold of and destroy their way of thinking? And the guy's like, uh, sir, do you want to rent a movie? <laughs> He's like, and we're here in the name of Jesus to shut this down. You need to stop this. And the young man says, sir, I just, I, they pay me $5 an hour. I just, I, just, I just work here. He goes, well, do you have an owner? He goes, yes, sir. He said, do you have a number for the owner? He said, because I need to talk to him right now. I'm fired up. And he, I'm a local pastor. And the kid's like, yeah. And he pulls out. Those days we had these landline phones. <laughs> but he had a cool one. It was cordless. Pulled up the antenna and dialed a number. And he said, hey, it's Billy. Uh, we got a ticked off customer and he'd like to talk to you. And he hands Pastor Rick the phone. Pastor Rick goes off. He says, sir, I'm at your place and I'm telling you right now, you should not be doing porno stuff back here. This is, should be a place, this is a city that belongs to God. I'm a pastor up the road. I'm a youth minister up the road. I got my assistant here with me. Da, 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 da. And this guy's giving it back to him. Run, 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 run. Pastor Rick, is that how you feel then? Then let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to shut this whole place down and then if you're not going to get rid of it. And that next Wednesday night, we all show up for youth service and Pastor Rick has lined up buses. There's about 400 young people in the youth group at that time. We've lined up buses. We go over to, he loads us off. Parents didn't even know. They were, they, they just dropped them off thinking it was youth group. Dro drove them down the street. A bunch of teenagers. Gets them out with a bullhorn. We are not going to put up with perversion in our city. Let's all pray. And all these young people are like, okay. And then they get, then they start getting like Antifa. Like, yeah, burn it down. And they're like, whoa, whoa. Bring it, bring it down a little notch here, buddy. Bring it down a little bit. And we start praying. And man, I mean, that didn't some of them got some oil, and they start putting it on the doors in the name of Jesus. And, man, we're all fired up. I want you to know that place shut down three weeks later. Unbelievable. See, Pastor Rick didn't just tell me that I should be a fired-up man of God. He modeled it for me. It wasn't all smart. I get that. 
Some of it could have take, taken a little bit more wisdom applied to it. But the point of the matter is, is we're not going to help the younger generation by preaching at them. we got to model it. If you're not living it, then why do they want it? If it's not been good enough for you to live out, then why is it good enough for them to try? It's not. And so when you and I curse out the guy behind the counter, our Christianity doesn't have any power, then why does it have any power for them? If, if our Christianity, if our relationship with Jesus is not worth turning off the TV for a little bit just to sit in the living room and worship for a little bit, then why do they need to go pray because they can't get good grades? Well, if, if, you can't, if, if you're not living it, then why do they want it? We have to model the things of God for the next generation. Are you with me? Say yes. And we all can repent about that. We can all say yes, Lord. Here's the second thing that Jesus did so specifically. Number two, write this down. He took responsibility. He took responsibility for him. You'll hear us say that around this church all over the place, taking spiritual responsibility for one another. He took responsibility. I love this moment in the book of Luke, chapter 6. Now, Jesus has started ministering, and people are following him. And they're called disciples simply because they saw him as someone they wanted to learn from. Later on, we'll use the term disciples to represent the twelve. But, but in this moment, in Luke chapter 6, I want you to turn there, verse 12. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, in one of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he tw chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. So there were multiple groups of people following him, considering themselves disciples of his, wanting to learn from him. And Jesus, after seeking the Lord all night long, came down and said, okay, you, you, okay. And he picks 12 teenagers, except for Peter, who's over 20. And he picks them. He takes responsibility in that moment. He begins to be responsible for them. They go and quit their jobs, and he begins to minister with them. He takes them every little town he goes to. They're coming with him. So he's got to feed them. He's got to make sure that they got deodorant. Come on, somebody. They're teenagers. They need deodorant. He's making sure, come on now, he's making sure what they're texting back and forth to their friends, what they're posting on social media. He takes responsibility not just for their spiritual development, but for the practical things as well. And this is where the failure comes in. Is that, is that we, many times as the church in America, we only take responsibility for our personal children. And then what happens is the other, the other groups, the other families are left without help. Or the families who do not know God and the kids who want to know God, no one takes responsibility. Or the new person who comes to the church who doesn't know the things of God and no one cares about them. And so then you want to get them in some type of little program that's going to somehow make them grow. Programs don't grow people. Disciples make disciples. Not sermons. Come on, stay with me. Not meetings. Disciples make, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Come on, let's go. Follow me. He took responsibility for Timothy and Silas and the others. He took responsibility for them. And this has been the problem. It ain't my fault. It ain't my fault. I can't help Gen Z stupid. I can't help it. I can't help that millennials are dumb. I can't help that the old boomers are just a bunch of idiots. I can't help it. No, no. When we take responsibility for one another, that's when real change starts to happen. When you and I begin to say, you know what, I'm going to take responsibility to see you grow. I'm going to take responsibility. And when you and I take responsibility, so the reason why we do small group life the way we do it here at Hill City, so we don't do it based on your interest. I'm not, everyone who likes to ride motorcycles, we're starting a motorcycle small group. Yay! No, 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 that's awesome. But then what happens when you don't ride a motorcycle anymore? 
And so it, not based on interest, but, but based on relationships, about taking responsibility for one another. And so when we're talking about the younger generation, even in this context, I'm not even talking about someone whose age bracket may be younger than you. Maybe it's just somebody that's not quite where you're at spiritually, take responsibility for them and start helping them grow a little bit. And let me tell you what Jesus did. He taught them how to pray. He took responsibility. In that responsibility, their prayer life was important, so he had to show them how to do that. Their development as a man was important, so he had to show them how to do it. But you only do that when you take responsibility for someone. It ain't my problem. They're not my problem. Somebody ought to take care of that. Somebody ought to deal with that. We are the church. We are the light of the world. Come on, are you with me? God set us apart for such a time as this. If you love Jesus, and you may not even know a whole lot, you have the ability still to help someone else get closer because you're one step closer than they are. I tell people all the time who just became a Christian, Pastor, I just became a Christian. I still got some real issues and stuff, but my friend, man he needs I want him I want you to meet him I want you to help him whoa, 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 whoa you help him he's your friend yeah but pastor you know I don't know a lot but you know more than he does and we're all walking it out together you don't arrive and then start helping this is the broken mentality we go hey I'm going this way I'm one step ahead grab a hold of me and let's go together oh guess what I just learned don't do that don't tell your wife that that's not good I just learned now and it's good for you to learn that this is, this is what real, genuine discipleship and transformation, if you're going to make a world changer, you can't just talk about it. You can't, you got to model it, but if you model it, but you never take responsibility for anyone, then all it does is ends up you being a good little Christian in your own little private world, and no one's life is affected. And this is why we have Christian kids who are full of depression. This is why we have a lost generation of folks coming up who don't know if God is real. This is why we've got professors to the tune of 25% in our universities who are atheists, because no one had enough, no one took responsibility. I'll never forget hearing... Um, uh, Apple uh, founder um, Steve Jobs talk about um, why he didn't uh, when he attempted to become a Christian he told the story that he went to church he was 14 15 years old and obviously Steve Jobs even in, as a kid was probably one of the most brilliant people on the planet and he said and as the preacher was pa was preaching he had some questions about God didn't really understand some things and that he walked up to him afterwards and he began to ask him those questions because he was 14 years old and some new young couple had just come to the church that was visiting too. The pastor didn't even take the time to try to answer any of his questions. Looked past him and saw another couple that would be a tithing couple and said, son, you just need to figure that out. And goes, well, leaves him alone and goes and grabs this other couple and starts engaging with them. He, he felt the devalue because of his age. And from that he went, I don't want it then. It can't be real. Because no one took responsibility for Steve Jobs. Can you imagine if Steve Jobs had been a Christian? Can you imagine the millions of lives that could have been affected for the kingdom of God? But no one took responsibility for him. Praying for them every day. It's real simple to take responsibility. Find coaching opportunities. I do this all the time with the men that I've taken responsibility for. I coach them. Call them in the day. Text them. Hey, man, how you doing with that? Walk it through with them as they go through difficult things. I'm there with them. We're doing it together because I've taken responsibility to make sure they go grow. The pastors here are my responsibility. And so when they mess up, I feel that. When they're hurting, I feel that. And I'm responsible for it. And that's why, because of that, we don't let just anyone get on the stage to represent the kingdom of God to you. That's why even, even our worship team, they all have high commitments to stay away from certain things that would cause you confusion if you found out that, well, yeah, they're still struggling with that. They're still struggling with that. And so as a result, we may not always get the best musicians on the stage, 
But I, I be doggone, I'm not going to put someone up in front of you that no one is discipling, that no one has called them out on their junk and let them keep going in that junk only to confuse you down the road because I don't want to go pick up a worship leader out of jail for a DUI the night before. And I'm not going to present you with that. And so I'm responsible for that. I'm responsible who, who steps up in front of you, who leads out. And I carry that responsibility with all sincerity. So that, might, that means a lot of times there are people that are gifted that will never get in positions of leadership because they refuse to grow and, and develop character and integrity as we're trying to mentor and disciple them. And that's why. That's, what, that's why this church is a little different. Here's the third thing. I know that was a little deep, but that's all right. Here's the third thing that Jesus did and we've got to learn to do. Number three is that he entrusted. He entrusted them. I love this passage in Luke chapter 7 where he sends them out two by two. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 10 he says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Verse 19, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus said, you know what? Hey, listen, guys. I want to I empower you. I'm going to empower you with my authority to go cast out devils, heal the sick. Anything touch, touches you, snakes, vipers, any kind of demonic forces come against you, you're going to be safe. I'm going to give you authority. Now go out door to door. And actually, if you'll go back and read earlier in that passage, he tells them that if you go into a city and you try to minister the kingdom of God and goodness and they don't want you and they reject you, he says, shake the dust off your feet and go on to the next town, which was a sign in Jewish culture. If I shake the dust off of my feet, that you have been rejected by God because of how you treated the, the, the word of God. That's, it was a kind of a cultural thing. And so he said, shake the dust and keep going. Keep moving. And so after doing this for a few days, they come back to Jesus. And say, it's unbelievable. Demons submit to us, come out of people. Healings are happening. Miracles are happening. Jesus said, whoa, be careful. Don't just get caught up in that. I'm glad that you understand I've entrusted you with the authority of the kingdom. But you need to be more grateful that your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You just need to be so grateful that the Father has accepted you because you've accepted the Son. This is much more valuable than the power that I've given you. He entrusted the power of the kingdom of God into a bunch of teenagers. A bunch of teenagers. Do you know how goofy some of their doctrine must have been? Do you know what they were? I mean, they were teenagers. They didn't have a whole lot of understanding yet. But he entrusts them with that power. He entrusts them. At 15 years old, the church that I was in entrusted me to have a small group. At 15. Do you know how much bad doctrine probably was going forth in that small group when I was 15 years old? But they entrusted me. And guess what? I got all my friends saved. Had 50 kids in that small group. Healing the sick, praying for people, casting out demons. I got into a thing. Everything was a demon. Ah, you overweight. You got an overweight demon. Let's go. I didn't, I didn't know. And my pastor had to come here. Wah, 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 wah. No such thing. Oh, okay. All right. But they entrusted me. When I graduated Bible school at 19 years old, they hired me on staff. Entrusted me. 19. 19. 19. I didn't have hair on my chest. I still don't. Anyway, but they, they trusted me. They let me do counseling at 19. And they did crazy. But they entrusted me. Why? Because they knew only by entrusting me could I ever mature. You cannot mature if you don't have opportunity. If you don't give anyone opportunity, then how? If they don't get a chance to try and fail, and can I just set us all free? We're all failing forward into God's arms. We're all failing forward. Uh, Hill City is a place where you can figure it out. It's okay. 
But when we coach you and we help you, don't get all prideful. Say, oh, praise God, I, I went to such and such back in the day, and I came from such and such church. Well, then go back there if you won't let us coach you. We want to help you. We want you to grow. We're all failing for We're all learning. Let's go. Oh, watch that one. <laughs> watch that one. That's, that is Christianity. This is how Jesus created world changers. The first thing he did is he modeled it. Then he took responsibility. Come here, buddy. Come here. You and me, I'm going to show you how to do this thing. I'm going to live this thing out in front of you, and I'm going to, I'm going to let you see me live it out, and I'm going to take responsibility for your growth, and then not only that, I'm going to give you opportunity. I'm going to give you opportunity. Can you believe that? At 33 years old, 33, I took over an internationally known Bible school called Christ for the Nations. At 33, I was the president of the Bible school, or the director as we call it. 33. Let me just say this. There were men and women on staff that had read the Bible a lot more times than I had at 33. There are men and women on staff that knew God a lot better than I did because I didn't have enough years of experience to know him at the levels that they did. But God entrusted me with that. Why? Because he said, that guy right there is going to be a world changer. And if we don't entrust him with the opportunities, then he'll never, ever become what he needs to be. Why do we hold back opportunities from the younger generation? Why do you think your small group, you have to do all the praying? Well, he don't really know how. Well, he's never going to know how until you let him. Well, he don't want to. Make him. <laughs> hey, bro. Hey, everybody, we're all gathered here tonight. Hey, Bill's going to lead in prayer. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. You got this. We'll all just wait. God, I hate my small group leader right now. I want to be open about it. But if you never give them opportunity, and ev no, one wants to, every, no one wants to fail, so everyone's scared of trying. And it takes a good leader to say, or a good person who loves to say, you got to try, buddy. Because if, if you don't swing for the fence, you're never going to hit the ball. You got to at least swing. You got to at least put you in the batter's box. You got to try and entrust them. And this is how Jesus made world changers. They turned the world upside down. A bunch of teenagers, a bunch of young people. Oh, listen, the Catholic Church calls Peter the Pope, the first Pope. They make saints out of James and Matthew and all these guys. They were a bunch of teenagers that literally got to hang out with Jesus. He entrusted to them the power of the living God. And once he died and resurrected, they went forth and did everything that he taught them to do. And they learn by the power of the Holy Spirit And they change the world We are not going to change the world By sitting lecturing younger generation And telling them this is what you should do And this is what you should do Until we get down in the middle of it with them And we say listen follow me as I follow Christ I'm a model it for you let me show you And here you take the keys to the car You drive it for a little bit Hey you lead the family in prayer right now for a little bit Hey won't you come over and won't you share with me What God's been saying to you Hey what you posted was magnificent By God that was powerful It's shaking me to the core of who I am I am. Can I tell you something? I've learned a lot more from the younger generation than they've ever learned from me because the spirit of the living God is upon them. Just like Jesus picked them, I'm telling you how he picked them back in the day, he's still picking them today because there's fire in their eyes, shut up down in their bones. And when you and I look past that to find someone that we think is more valuable, we literally break forth. We break down, excuse me, the plan of God in the earth. Instead, we should grab them and say, let's figure it out together. Let's go. And I'm not talking about your own little kids and that's good for your families and we'll talk about families next week but here and now we're losing 
a generation that just needs somebody to love on, somebody to spend some time with them, somebody to say, you can do it. God is for you. Not, yeah, that was stupid. Don't do that again. But God believes in you, and I believe in you. Come on, let's do this thing. And when you and I do that, we will turn the world upside down. We will transform it, and we won't have people live, walking around here full of depression, and I just got a bad response on my post, and everybody is hating on me, and I'm being canceled because of this person said this. Instead, we'll have a bunch of bold lions, radical men and women of God around us. 